43, and thank you, Harriet, for taking on that long greeting for us this morning. So, Mark chapter 4, from verse 35, is where we want to be. And, and there's, a, there's a title for you, the powerful, the powerful presence in suffering. Most of you, I am sure, will be aware of the miracles that were read to you. I'm pretty sure that most of them will be very, very familiar to you. You'll be familiar with Jesus calming the storm. You will be familiar with the healing of the demon-possessed man that had a legion of demons. You will be familiar with the healing of the woman that was bleeding. You will be familiar with the little girl who was raised from the dead. But the first thing we want to do this morning is simply ask, what, what can they not mean? What, what do these miracles not mean for us? And right up front I want to say to you that these miracles do not mean that we can do them today. They cannot mean that we can do these miracles today. I actually tried to do a calming of the storm last year. Uh, last year, my family and I and some friends, we went up to Monkey Maya and we went on one of those boat trips looking for something called a dugong. Um, after a very unsuccessful trip, I still don't know if those things actually exist. We were on our way back and the wind got up and the waves started breaking in over the boat. My youngest son, Jordan, and Chelsea over there thought that it was great fun standing on the front of the boat as the boat's doing this and that, and the winds are breaking in, and the waves are coming in, while well, I'm sitting on the side going green, nausea, and wanting to throw up. I then decided at that point I was going to command the wind and the waves to calm down. Be still, as I was about to hurl. I said, Lord, don't you care if I throw up? Do you know what happened? Do you know what actually happened? I managed to not throw up, but the the wind and the waves got stronger and bigger. We, we, we just don't see today, do we, people that are possessed with thousands of demons and then someone coming along and then de-demoning them with power and then ending the lives of 2,000 pigs. I do feel for those pigs, don't you? And we simply just don't have someone today where they're just oozing out miraculous power and you can just come up behind them and simply with a touch, without them even knowing, touch them and then getting healed. And, and anybody that claims to say that they can raise people from the dead, I suggest it's probably a dubious gift at best. Perhaps a fairly humorous story or maybe not so humorous story of a raising of the dead came out of Africa a little while ago. A woman supposedly had died in the service. This pastor, I don't know, he'd probably been preaching too long, and uh, she collapsed in the service, and they claimed that she was dead. Uh, this was all filmed, and apparently uh, she was dead, but she woke up, apparently, from the dead by the power of the pastor a little bit while later. But on investigation, it turned out that she had collapsed into a temporary coma from low blood sugar. We simply cannot do these miracles today. But one thing I do want you to see in the passage is the eyewitness details. 
Did you notice them? Did you see the eyewitness detail? So in 435, we're told that that day when evening came. We're also told in 436 there were other boats. In 438, we're told that Jesus is sleeping. In fact, we're told that He was sleeping on a cushion. In 5, 4 and 5, we're told incredible detail about this demon-possessed man. He's got breaking of chains. He's howling. He's cutting himself with stones. In 5.22, we're told the name of the, of the little girl's dad, namely Jairus. In 5.25 and 26, we're told that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. In fact, she's spent all she had. She's destitute. No doctor can help her. And in 5.42, we're told that the dead girl that was raised was 12 years old. They are all very crucial eyewitness details. And here's why they are so important. Because here is a pretty standard statement from people who do not believe that the Bible is reliable or trustworthy. Here's a standard statement. The Bible is full of fairy tales. It was written by man and is completely false. It is no more reliable of a book than Mother Goose or Hansel or Gretel. But you see, what those eye detail those eyewitness details do, is they show us that either Mark witnessed some of those details himself, or he was very careful to record from people like the Apostle Peter who had actually been there. Those eyewitness details are there to show us that these are not cleverly inspired hoaxes. They are not things that the disciples wanted to see Jesus happen. They are real events experienced by real people in real time by a real Jesus. And so I really want to encourage you this morning that, that you really can have confidence in God's Word. That this is God-breathed and He worked through God-inspired authors who have written an historical account of what Jesus did in the lives of real, real people. You can trust this Word. You can stand on this Word. You can build your life on this Word. You can hold out this Word of life to people so that they may be saved by Jesus. And please understand this this morning. You don't have to understand everything in the Bible to believe it's all true. Do you get that? You do not have to believe, you do not have to understand everything in here to believe that it's all true. This passage is about the powerful presence in suffering. I've changed the names. The story is heartbreakingly true. Kate, a Christian, was married to Luke, a Christian. They have two children. The son has a serious mental health disorder. Luke, before entering ministry, was a barrister by trade, a brilliant man in many ways, quick, sharp, eye for detail, gifted Bible preacher and church planter. A double life was exposed, leading to Luke taking his own life, leaving a devastated wife behind and two children broken in pieces. Here is something that Kate wrote. My son is really struggling. Luke was his best friend. I'm worried about him. 
there is suicide risk for him too. Please pray for me to stay sane so that I can balance everything. We are also dealing with a grief-stricken, malicious party who are out to blame me for driving Luke to take his life. They are trying to claim against his estate. It's beyond belief. They have no real claim, but I now may need defamation lawyers. I'm fighting to find a way to keep my children safe and a way to fund my home so we can stay here. Luke built part of our home and all the memories are here. Now on earth, I have to fight for my son's already broken mind and now for his broken heart. Number one, the powerful presence in the storm. You know, don't you, that when a truly experienced fisherman are freaked out in a storm, you know that it was a storm. When you know that fishermen are about to die, you know that it is serious. But the key is verse 41, isn't it? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. But what's important to notice, they are no longer terrified by the storm. They are terrified by the one who calmed the storm. Who is this man? Who is this man that has such power to calm both the wind and the waves? Who is this man? Well, it was becoming obvious, wasn't it? Because every Jew knew Psalm 89.9, you rule over the surging sea. When his waves mount up, you still them. Every Jew knew Psalm 65 verse 7, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Who is this man? Well, it would be a fairy tale if it was none other than the presence in the storm. We just back up into verse 38. Notice as the storm is raging, the disciples wake him up saying, Teacher, teacher, don't you, don't you care that we're going to drown? Don't you care if we're drowning? It's quite striking, isn't it? That the disciples doubted the love of their Lord in the storm. The disciples doubted the love of their Lord in the storm. Don't you care, Lord, if we drown? Listen to this by Sinclair Ferguson. He says, The disciples allowed the storm to come between them and the assurance of their master's devotion to them. When the storm rises, when the storm rises, we doubt His love. We allow our faith to be diverted from its anchor in the cross and lose our moorings in the storms of life. But then as we back up a little bit further into 4.35, notice, let's just notice what happened before the storm even started that day when Jesus came. Jesus says, let us go to the other side. As the storm is about to come, who initiated the boat ride? Who initiates the boat ride? Jesus. Did Jesus know that the storm was coming? Did Jesus say that they were going to get to the other side? Sinclair Ferguson says again, quote, they allowed the voice of the storm to silence the voice of their Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has, is, and will continue to lead us into the storms of life where He will grow us and stretch us. In these storms of life, we're going to feel helpless. 
We're going to feel powerless. We may at times feel as if we're going to drown and die. But let us not doubt the love of our Lord in the storm. Let us not think that our Lord does not love us in the storm. Let us not allow the voice of the storms to silence the voice of our Lord. We really do need to hear his voice again, don't we? In places like Romans 8, no, 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 in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So from the powerful presence in the storm, we go to the powerful presence in the satanic. If you look at the start of Mark chapter 5, it really is very easy to get distracted by the fate of the pigs instead of what happened to the demon-possessed man. I'm not sure that this account would go down very well with pig activists. But some people seriously get very, very disturbed by the insensitivity of Jesus to allow demons to destroy 2,000 pigs. For example, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And one of the reasons why he wrote the book Why I'm Not a Christian, after reading Mark 5, he posed it in the form of a question. He said, why all this dreadful waste? Referring to the pigs. And that really is the problem with the townspeople, isn't it? Have a look at verse 17. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. If you've got your Bible, look at chapter 5, verse 3. Here is a man who is living among the tombs. Literally from the Greek it means he is in the dwelling of the dead. This man, this man is enslaved physically, enslaved spiritually. He is possessed and oppressed by Satan. He is howling in the agony of his condition. He is self, he is isolated, self-harming. And, 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 and the people see Jesus set this man free and they ask Jesus to leave. So easy to be more concerned about pigs than people. More concerned about physical health than spiritual health. More concerned about preserving our church traditions than seeing sinners saved. More concerned about our biblical theological preferences than seeing people rescued from hell for Christ. But you can see, can't you, that this demon-possessed man, this diomiac, he's in the very same situation as the disciples. Do you notice that? They, this man was powerless. This time not against a storm, but against the forces of evil. He was helpless to rescue himself. He was absolutely unable to stop Satan from destroying him. This is the condition of every man, woman, and child born into this world. Born dead in sin. Born enslaved to a sinful nature. Born under the control and the dominion of the evil one. And it is only the presence, only the presence has the power to set us free from the power of Satan. 
But where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He's right there, isn't he? He's right there in the boat. He's right there in the storm. He's right there with the demoniac. He's right there in the presence of Satan. When the storm strikes, he's there. When Satan strikes, he's there. The powerful presence in the storm, in the satanic. And thirdly, we go to the powerful presence in the sickness. The story of Jesus healing the woman bleeding is an extraordinary, extraordinary miracle at so many levels. You'll notice you've got your Bible, verse 22. Jairus, the, the synagogue leader, comes along and, and he's there with his cohort and he comes and says, oh, Jesus, please come, come, come. Come and heal my daughter that is, that is busy dying. We're told, verse 24, that Jesus goes with him, but on the way, look at it, verse 25 following, a woman that has got some sort of uncontrolled bleeding, sort of a menstrual issue of some sort, she comes up behind Jesus. She thinks to herself, if I just touch his clothes, if I just touch him, I, 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 I will be healed. She, she is healed instantly. She knows in her body that she's been healed. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He stops to address her. It's unthinkable, number one, because as the disciples rightly say in verse 31, the disciples say to Jesus, you want to know who touched you? There are thousands of people trying to touch you. And it's also unthinkable because it's this delay that actually causes the daughter to die before he gets there. Reminds you of Jesus in John 11, doesn't it? He hears that Lazarus is sick and Jesus waits four days he waits for Lazarus to die before he goes. Why does Jesus stop to engage this woman? Let me give you at least two reasons. Firstly, women in those days, as they still are today, both inside and outside the church, women are seen to be inferior subordinates. Jesus reveals himself to a woman. He allows a woman to touch him. But he doesn't just restore her body, he restores her dignity because in restoring her dignity and, and, and her body, remember that she'd been bleeding for 12 years, which meant that she was ritually, ritually unclean and was unable to go to the synagogue. Jesus stops to address this woman because he is affirming both the worth and the dignity of woman in the image of God. I do want to say to you, it's a bit of a sidebar, but related, my brothers and sisters, I do have a very deep grief in my heart by the way women are treated, often even in the church today. The abuse of women in the church, either sexually, physically, emotionally, is often fueled by a distorted understanding of male headship. My heart's desire and cry to God is that BBC would be a safe haven for women, whether they are single, married, divorced, separated, treated with utter worth and dignity in the image of God. But a second reason why he stops to address this woman, and perhaps more importantly, and I'll give it to you in the words of Sinclair Ferguson again, 
He says, Jesus, quote, Jesus, by engaging with the woman personally, he wanted her to know that she was not healed by magic power, but by a person. See, this woman needed to know that she was not healed by magic, that she was healed by the presence in her sickness. And this woman was destitute. Do you notice that? Poverty-stricken, spent all she had on doctors that couldn't help her. And she was in exactly the same position as the disciples and the demoniac. You notice that? She was helpless. She was powerless. She was unable in and of herself to rescue herself. Where was Jesus? He was in the storm. He was right there in the boat. Where was Jesus? He was right there with the demoniac. He was right there in the presence of evil. Where was Jesus? He was right there in the sickness, allowing the very sickness to touch him so that the unclean can become clean in him. Powerful presence in the storm, in the satanic, in the sickness, and in the death they sleep. Jairus and his clan may well have thought that Jesus must have been the most insensitive, uncaring rabbi on the face of the planet. Because Jesus' little pit stop to engage a woman of all things resulted in the death of the daughter. Pick it up in 535. While Jesus was still speaking, speaking to the woman, right? Still speaking. Some of the people come from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Jairus, your daughter's dead. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Fair call, right? Fair call. Well, Jesus can heal fever in Mark chapter 1. Jesus can heal a leper in Mark 1. Jesus can heal a paralyzed man, Mark 2. He can even heal a man with a shriveled hand, Mark chapter 3. Okay, Jesus can calm a storm, so he can cast out demons, but raise the dead? Nah. Nah. I mean, dead is dead, right? Dead is dead. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Because the powerful presence can even raise the dead. Let's pick it up from verse 40. After telling the wailing crowd that the girl was asleep, they laughed at him. He put them all out, takes the father's the child's father and mother, the disciples, they go into where the child was. He takes her by the hand. He says to her, Talita kum, which means, little girl, little girl, I say to you, get up. She got up. She began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And no doubt everybody was completely befuzzled and astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anybody know about it. Death is the painful intruder, isn't it? 
It's the painful intruder no matter when it comes, how it comes. Whether it's old age, dying in your sleep peacefully, heart attack, cancer, car accident, suicide. In one of the most poignant passages in all of Scripture, we are told that when Jesus got to the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. He wept over the death of his beloved friend. And twice in John chapter 11, we're told that Jesus was filled with a righteous indignation, with a righteous anger against death because he saw the misery that it brought. It is not inappropriate to be angry at death. But even the powerful presence can raise the dead. And that little dead girl was in the same position as the disciples, the destitute woman and the demoniac, wasn't she? She was helpless. She was powerless. Especially when you're dead. But where was Jesus? Where was he? Well, he was right there. When the storm struck, he was there. When Satan struck, he was there. When sickness struck, he was there. When death struck, he was there. He was there in the midst. So what does that mean? For the powerful presence in the suffering. If you and I are absolutely honest, we would really want to believe that the powerful presence would heal all of us. Isn't that what we want? That's what we so desperately would want to believe, that, 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 that Jesus would heal all our storms now, all our suffering now, all our oppression of Satan now, and, and somehow sort out all the inevitable death that comes. But it's not the promise of this passage not the promise. Let me read something to you that Kate wrote again after the suicide of her husband Luke. I am aware of God in the storm with me. It's terrifying at the same time. People tend to think about Satan, his role, how dark he is, but it is God who is dangerous, not Satan. God will remove his hand or he will act he will direct Satan or give Satan room. God will act in full and clear knowledge or He will allow something to play out in full and clear knowledge. God does not save us from the fall on earth. Genetics, illness and trauma have consequences. And in the end, all of that leads to death. Profound words. Why? Because here is the hope that Kate and every single person that belongs to Jesus has. And Matthew helps us with Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Him and He drove out the spirits with a word and He healed all the sick. Why? 
This was to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and He bore our diseases. You see, it's at the cross that Jesus bears and endures our storms. It's at the cross that Jesus sets us free from the enslavement of Satan. It's there at the cross where He bears all our sickness and suffering. It's there at the cross that He takes on our deathly sleep so that they won't have the last word. They will all be healed in the life to come. Storms, Satan, sickness and sleep will one day be silent because the power of storms, Satan, sickness and sleep was broken at the power of the cross. Paul put it like this in Romans. He said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then Paul put it like this in Colossians 2.15, And Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing in over, over them by the cross. See, if here this morning, if you trust the presence on the cross, if you trust the presence on the cross, Here's the promise. Here's the promise. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain the old order of things has passed away. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning to hear the words of Jesus. Take heart. Take heart. Jesus says, I've overcome the storm. I've overcome your sickness. I've overcome Satan. I've overcome death. Take heart. Take heart. But there's something else, isn't there? Where was Jesus? Where is Jesus in all the suffering? If he was right there in the boat... If he was right there with a demoniac. If he was right there with a destitute woman. If he was right there with the dead girl. Where's Jesus in your suffering? Where's Jesus in your suffering? He's right there with you. Right now. Always has and always will be until the day he takes us home. Brothers and sisters, the powerful presence, the powerful presence is with you 
by His Spirit. And He is leading us through all our suffering, preparing us for a time when the sting of storm and the sting of Satan and the sting of sickness and the sting of deathly sleep will be no more. Do you remember these words of the Apostle Paul? In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, he says, Where, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God because He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The powerful presence in suffering. I'll leave you with those words as the music team 